Let us pray. Well, Father, we think back on this, the night that these events transpired physically and literally. Shepherds in fields, an angel, and then a multitude of angels. Scampering off to Bethlehem to, to see the, the Messiah. How we wish, Father, that we, we could have seen it. But we're thankful for this word that reminds us of this story, Father, every time we open to this chapter in Luke. And it's our prayer this morning, Father, as we, we study and, and think about it and contemplate on it. And that you will open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear in such a way that we are changed by these events. So we pray, Father, for this blessing in Christ Jesus. We pray for knowledge and for wisdom. We pray to be changed. We pray to be changed, Father, by your word and spirit this morning. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus and all the church said. You know, there are so many things that, that happen this time of year uh, you know, the, what is it, 101.9 plays uh, the traditional Christmas music, you know, 24-7. Uh, people, a lot of the time, not all the time, and most of the people, not all of them, are in pretty good moods and everybody is festive and everybody's feeling kind of generous. You know, one of the words that we do not associate with this time of year, though, is the word fear. Fear is not a word we normally associate with Christmas. But it is the operative emotion for the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. Now these shepherds, just a word about them. We think of shepherds for the most part as being these idealistic, pastoral working, uh, pasture living individuals that, that are very, you know, we have kind of a romanticized idea of what the shepherds were, were really like. The shepherds in Jesus' day are completely different from every vision just about we have if that vision is romantic and idealistic about the shepherds. When you go to John chapter 10, I think it's about verse 11 or so, Jesus says he's a shepherd, but he has to qualify it. He has to say that he is what kind of shepherd, church? What kind of shepherd? The good shepherd. The reason is not very many people associated good with the word shepherd. Shepherds were not at the high end of the pecking order in the first century during the time of Jesus. The rabbis had these, these rulings and these teachings about the shepherds. For instance, they would say that shepherds were not allowed to testify in a court of law. You know what that meant? Word of a shepherd could not be trusted. In an ancient civilization like that, if your word could not be trusted, you were way down here in the pecking order. You were not considered to be a very good, very a trustworthy individual if you were a shepherd. In fact, the rabbis tell these stories. You find it in the ancient literature of Israel. These shepherds would, uh, they, they would take these sheep. In fact, the rabbi said, you know, that the, only the sheep that were going to be used for the sacrifices would be found next to Bethlehem or, or would be found in the, the area of Bethlehem outside of Jerusalem. But all of the other flocks of sheep would be, would be kept way out into the wilderness. And because there were not a whole lot of people that lived out there, because it was very, very vacant in terms of eyeballs that could be on these shepherds, these shepherds were known to, to shear these sheep and to sell the wool with the hope 
that with the time remaining during the growing season that the, the wool would grow back and the owner would not notice that he had been sheared. And so here are these shepherds who are not the best individuals. They're not anybody's best men anywhere. And they're out at the end of the night, a little rugged, a little rough around the edges, a little unpolished, sitting around the fire, maybe telling a couple of stories that they wouldn't tell in the presence of a rabbi. And all of a sudden, there is this light that comes into their presence. When's the last time you have been out in the wilderness? I mean, out, not in your backyard. But when's the last time you have been out in the wilderness where there are no street lights, there are no car lights, there are no lights of any kind. You're just out there in the wilderness, just you and stars and moon and trees and earth. It's dark. It is incredibly dark. And all these men have is just a fire, perhaps, or they're warming themselves at night when all of a sudden, like a laser, this light appears and it's an angel. And in verse 9 in the Old King James, Luke says, The angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were what? Sore afraid. Sore afraid. Which is just another way of saying terribly afraid. They were incredibly afraid. In fact, when you read this in the original language, it doesn't say that they were just afraid. It says that they were phobic with a megaphobia. In the Greek language, if you wanted to really emphasize something as powerful, you, you were redundant, you repeated it, you said it twice. They were fearful with a great fear. And it wasn't just a fear. It was, they were phobic with this phobia. Now, being afraid of this kind of light, quite frankly, is normal, especially if you're a shepherd. Not only is it unexpected, not only is it supernatural, but this is the kind of light that affects all men's hearts. Over in, uh, in John chapter 3, the Apostle John says, you know, this is the verdict that light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were what? Evil. When this kind of light comes into the world, not just a fluorescent light, not just an LED light, but just, you know, the God light of heaven comes in to the presence of men, what men become is fearful. And that's what happens here. And quite frankly, it's a very typical, it's a very normal reaction to this kind of light. You know, one of the ways that, that, that bridges, you know, they, they find that bridges are unsafe, you know, after a period of time, regardless of what anything's made out of, it's going to show, after wear and tear, it's going to show some, some fractures from the stress. And so bridges from time to time will go under stress tests to make sure that, 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 that this thing is not fracturing and crumbling and falling apart in such a way that if cars begin to go over, they're going to fall into the, in, into, the, into the river, to the valley. And there are times when a gigantic semi will go across these bridges and you can literally see places on the bridge where it begins to expand. Well, this is what happens spiritually in our lives, when we come into contact, or this light comes into contact with us, one of the words for God's glory that we find in the Old Testament in the Hebrew is the word kavod. It's one of those words, nobody really knows exactly how it came about in terms of its etymology, but it's somehow connected to the liver. The liver being the heaviest of the organs. And so when it talks about God's glory in the Old Testament Hebrew, about His kavod, it's talking about the heaviness the burden of the weight of His holiness and the greatness of His character. That's God's glory. 
And that's what's come in to the presence of these shepherds. The weight of God's glory. And what is it they see under the burden of that holiness? The fractures that are in their own life. That's why they're fearful. That's why they're afraid. Their fractures have been exposed. The incredible thing about these angels, the angels know men. They know the kind of stuff that is inside of men. They've been watching angels. This wise angel says to them, Fear not. Don't be afraid. Why? He says in verse 10, For behold, look at, see this thing, Grip it in your eyes. Behold, I bring you good tidings. That is good news. I bring you the gospel. It is good tidings of great joy which shall be for all people. You know, the Christmas story is really about the removal of fear from human beings. If you are afraid, then you're not beholding the gospel. And if you're beholding the gospel, then you will not be afraid. Now, how do you overcome that? Well, there's a fundamental truth that we all have to have in our hearts to get this thing going. And that is, all our fears come from being afraid of God. All of our fears come from fearing God. And I'm not talking about the positive fear that the the old King James uses from time to time in terms of awe and respect of of God's honor and, and, and glory and, and His holiness that we come in contact with because His character is perfect and He is righteous in all that He does. We are in awe. We are in fear in a positive sense of the greatness of His character. That's not what I'm referring to though here. I'm talking about being afraid of God because of the weight of His holiness exposing our weakness and our fractures and the ugly spots. You remember the story of Adam and Eve? First story in the Bible, right after creation. It's a wondrous, it's a wondrous time on earth. There's no cancers or leukemia. There's no such thing as death. And as comfortable as we are with our best friends, our most intimate friends, a spouse, a brother, a father, a mother, whoever it may be, even more comfortable were we during this period of time being in God's presence because there was no sin. But then this destroyer comes, Satan comes, during this period of time in which we are able to live in God's light without fear, and he, 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 he causes them, he, he tempts them, he, he leads them down this path in which they do not trust God any longer, but they decide that they're going to make themselves God, trust their own judgment. Sin enters into the world, And then later in the day or later in the week, sometime later on, after they they eat of the forbidden fruit, the light of God's glory in God's presence comes back into that garden. And this time he's looking around for Adam and Eve. He wants to spend time with them. He wants to be with them. They're usually right there to be found. They want to be with him. He wants to be with them. But he can't find them. And then he calls out, and finally they they come together. And he says, "Why, why in the world were you hiding? And Adam says, I heard you in the garden. And I was what? Afraid. I was afraid of your light. I was afraid. I was naked. You're going to expose me. So I hid. And it's been that way ever since. You know, one of the things that that I learned very early in life, especially in ministry, was that we expend a lot of energy. We spend a lot of money to convince other people that we're okay. 
We spend a lot of money to convince people by, by how we dress. We, 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 uh, we, we practice how we speak in order to convince people that we are worthwhile. We spend so much energy trying to convince other people that we're okay. And we compensate for the fact that we know that we have these fractures in our soul. We, 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 we contrive ways in which we try to camouflage all of those fractures and all of those stress points and all of those blemishes on our character and on our, our, our personality and in our thinking and our emotional life and in our actions in such a way that everybody thinks that we're okay, that we're good, that we're good to go. And so how do we do that? Well, we think we're safe because, you know, we have a job. Or we have a family that loves us, or we have friends, or we have uh, uh, people that look up to us, or we have talents, or we have looks. And all of these, as you know, as you know, are precarious. They're precarious. And we know it. Because you can lose the job. Family members can pass away. Family members can disappoint you. Unfortunately, our friends see through us from time to time. Our looks can dry up. And the end of the matter is this, that regardless of whatever it is that we might try, whatever makeup, we, whatever spiritual Maybelline or, or uh, uh, Mary Kay that we might use to try to cover up all of those flaws and at least convince everybody else that we're doing okay, we cannot hide that from God. The light is that penetrating. The light is that is that heavy on, on our consciousness. And so what do you have in Isaiah chapter 6? You have Isaiah who is a, a, a great man. He is a prophet of God. He is the great of the speaking prophets in the Old Testament. His, his, his book, Isaiah, is the beginning of the prophetic section in our English Bibles, our, our, our English translations. And here is Isaiah, who is about as good as anybody in Jerusalem during this period of time. And he's contemplating what life is all about. Now that King Isaiah has died, and then all of a sudden, the glory of God appears to him. And as good as he is, as well-respected as he is, he senses that he is completely undone and unclean in God's light, in God's kavod, his glory. And what is it that he says? Woe to me, for I am what? a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And then you've got Job. First chapter of Job doesn't say that Job was a pretty good guy. It says that Job was the most righteous man who lived in the land of the East. He's no slouch when it comes to the things of God. And there's this description of him in the first chapter about all of the sacrifices and all of the wonderful things that he'd be doing, the greatness of his life. And then all of a sudden, all of that stuff is taken away. There is calamity that hits him like... We don't want our imagination to take us there. And he has some friends that come from a long distance, and these friends are not much help at all except to, to, to make him even more miserable. In fact, these friends, uh, when, when you read the first couple of chapters of Job, what happens when these friends show up is that he is in such bad shape physically himself. On the inside, he is a wreck because of everything that's happened with children and, and, and wealth and, and his spouse. And on the outside, he is a wreck physically because of what has happened to his body with the disease, scraping the sores with broken pottery. That when his friends see him, they have a funeral service at a distance because he is so wretched. But they find out that he's still alive. 
and they begin to argue with him about the nature of sin and the nature of his own life. And they're trying to tell him, you know what, the reason that all of this has come upon you is because you're a terrible, terrible individual. And Job says, no, I'm a righteous man. And at the end of the book, he's just so convinced that if God would just listen to him, that, that God would repent. But what happens in so many of the cases, in all of the cases, 100% of the time, is that it's not God who listens at a point, it's we who listen. And it's God who speaks. And God says, where were you when all of these stars were hung in the sky? And where were you when the moon was formed and, and the earth and the trees? And where were you when you heard angels sing for the first time like I did? And Job listens chapter after chapter after chapter in the greatness of God's glory being revealed to him. And in Job 42, what he says, you know, I, had heard, I, I thought I knew so much about you, but it was really only about my ears hearing you sort of at a distance. But now my eyes have seen you. And I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Then you go over to the New Testament. And you have over there in Luke chapter 5, you have Luke, you have Luke talking about you know, this, this, this Peter is a great fisherman. And he's been out all night. He's been trying to fish because that's when fishermen in that time and that, that part of the world would go out and fish. They come back. Jesus, this famous rabbi, is on the seashore. He asks Peter to take him out a little bit so that he can talk to all of the crowds and all of the crowds can see him. And he teaches him. And, and Peter's gracious. You know, he takes him out a little, a little ways. He wants to hear Jesus himself. And he listens and he listens and he listens. And then after everybody is dispersed, he goes, did you catch any fish last night, Peter? And Peter says, not much. You don't see anything, do you? And Jesus says, why don't you go out a little bit further and, and cast your nets out? And, and Peter, with not, probably not a little bit of sarcasm, says, listen, I know that you're a famous rabbi and I know that, that you're very, very intelligent, but you know you really are a son of a carpenter. I'm a son of a fisherman. I know about fish. I know about catching them. But because you say so, I'll go ahead and do it. And so they go out a little bit further from the shore. They cast out the nets. And what, you know the story. The nets come up so full of fish that the boat begins to swamp. And what is it that Peter does when he realizes that he is in the presence of God? He falls down to his knees. And he says, depart from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. You can't hide that truth when you get near to God of who you really are, of who you really are at the very core of your being, even in the very core of that place where you're not always honest with yourself. But when you begin to draw near to God, we begin to see that we're all like these shepherds, aren't we? We're all like these shepherds. There's that, that part of us that when we find ourselves in the glory of God, in God's light, in the presence of, of God or His angels, that we fall to the ground petrified and in fear for our very lives. So the second thing then is if the fundamental thing is all of our fears come from fearing God, then what is the essential thing that we need to do to make sure that that fear is driven from our life? To, to, to fear not. To fear not. Well, it's to see what the shepherd saw. Verse 10. The angel said, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. What you need to behold is the gospel. The gospel is the solution. 
The reason we fear is because we don't see the solution. All we see is the problem. The problem is, is that we are a bridge over water that is crumbling and about to, to, to tumble into the drink. What we need to see is what it is that the angels are talking about, that the gospel is being delivered in this baby, in this Messiah, right now. And what does that mean, though? What it means is that all of those blemishes, all of those fractures, all of those things, the Savior that is being born to you, all of that, those fractures are going to be removed. You know, Paul will say over to the, the church in, in Colossae, He's going to say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. What we see is the gospel. And what the gospel says to us is that because of Jesus, because Jesus, without blemish, was willing to take all of our guilt, your guilt and my guilt, your guilt, and your guilt and my guilt and take it on to himself and as a loving sacrifice, a voluntary sacrifice because of that love, because he wanted all of us to be saved, he takes all of that crime, all of that guilt upon himself so that we can be pardoned, so that we can rise up from the ground, not in fear of the greatness of God's glory, but to know that we have been, because of that sacrifice, all our sins forgiven. I remember, the, I can remember like it was yesterday. The first time I was forgiven. There was a, well, I, I'd been forgiven a lot. It, I'm, you're talking about a little boy and his remembrances of being forgiven. But there was something that my dad would just not tolerate. My, my father is, is, is a man of integrity, a man of tremendous honesty. And that doesn't mean that, that he, he confuses, you know, telling the facts and telling the truth with compassion and with mercy. There is a, a, a tremendous amount of sweetness about him. But he would brook no lie. And so there was a time when I, I you know, I, I, he probably saw me do it. And I just didn't know it at the time. But he asked me, did you do this? And I said, no. And he said, well, I'll give you one more chance to tell the truth. You know how I feel about the truth, son. You're, you never lie. You never lie to me. You never lie to your mother. You lie to no one. You always tell the truth. Now, did you do this thing? And I said, nope. And you know what happened? My dad was from the old school where, you know, a, a hot bottom was a, was a child well taught. You know? <laughs> and I mean, he, he, he wore me out because he loved me. And because he wanted in my heart, indelibly placed a, a lesson on telling the truth, regardless of what it might cost me. And my dad, uh, even to this day, I'm 51 years old, my dad is 81. My dad is still the big enchilada in my life. I mean, I, I'm still aspiring to be as great a man as he is. Uh, I, I still work to try to have his character. So I'm crying like you can imagine, you know, a little kid crying because, you know, dad has, has, has worn him out. And you never forget that time when, it, when he gets down on your level after he's just worn you out and he says, come here. And he braces, embraces you so, so tightly. You could, I could smell the, the aqua velva and the vitalis 
And he says, I want you to know that I hate doing that. And every time you lie, you will pay the consequences. But learn the lesson. And I want you to know that you're forgiven. And you know, one of the reasons I'm crying is because it hurts. But one of the reasons that I'm crying is because, you know, as a little kid, you're honest. When you get older, you don't want anybody to know that you're hurt or that you're ashamed. or that You don't want anybody, because we spend a lot of energy to let people know we're okay, even if it's somebody that we love so much. But as a little four, five, six-year-old kid going into elementary school, you don't have any shame about you. And I'm crying not only because it hurt, but because this is my dad. And I want more than anything in this world to be held by my father. And when he brought me in, and I hear the words forgiven, changed everything. I wish I could say that I've never bent the truth in the last 45 years or so. Truth of the matter is, I'm not all that perfect regardless of what you might think or what my wife may tell you. But you never forget. And that's just one of many instances in my life and your life as you think about it when you felt the tremendous power of forgiveness. You know, at a much greater level, when we come into God's presence and that light shines on us and we realize that it is the Creator of the universe, whose eyes are on us. We know that we have fractures. We know we have stresses. We know that we have, we have places of blemish. We know that we are sinners. We are sinners before God. We're like these shepherds. All we can do is be petrified on the ground in fear of destruction. But the angel says, I don't want you to be afraid. Because guess what? In this town where you can barely see the lights over there, a Savior, a Savior has been born to you. A Savior, yes, somebody who is going to save you from your sins. A Savior, yes, the Messiah, a Messiah, yes. The one who is going to to get you off of the ground in the presence of God. And because of forgiveness and because of love, you're going to be able to say, Father, once again, you're me. He is Christ the Lord. When I think about the Christmas time of year, I always think about this particular little statement. This little statement. Peace on earth and goodwill to men on whom God's favor rests. Well, not only do they say that there's a Savior that's been born, and that's the essential thing that we've we've got to look at, that there is a gospel that is so revolutionary and so changing that has entered into the world through the life of this child, that we we look at it and we contemplate the weight of the meaning of that act in history and how it changes all of us. But then there's a second thing, and that is we... we have a new compass in life. And that is, He becomes our Lord. He, back in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. He's Christ the Lord. You, all of us need a new gauge. All of us need a new compass. All of us need a new standard by which we live our life. 
All of us need to have our standards raised so that we're, not only are we challenged, but raised to the point that we're going in the right direction. You know, there are so many of us who call ourselves believers, and we even might use the word disciple, that, that quite frankly, we've stolen that word from the truth of its reality. It, there's more to being a Christian church. There's, there's more than to, to, to being a disciple of Jesus than rearranging what you do on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. Or what you might do with your checking accounts or your, your savings one day during the week. What it means when you've experienced that forgiveness and you've experienced God's grace, the fact that He is Jesus, you have allowed Jesus to be a Savior to you is that that is a life-changing truth that has entered into your heart. It has penetrated you like a spear. And because of His life, we change. We change. Think about every good thing that's ever happened to you. Somebody has done you such a fantastic favor. Was your response to that to, to want to take it, you know, to, to take advantage of that person, to take advantage of that good thing, and to go out and and and, and sort of, you know, cre- create the kind of life that would take advantage of that of that favor and and really not honor it. You know, the the faithfulness, the generosity, the honor that that person has paid you in doing you that favor that you're just going to go out and sully, you're going to muddy that favor, or or do you become over over overrun with gratitude, overwhelmed with thankfulness? For that person that has helped you up off of the ground. Whatever it might be. might have been financial or might have been relational or it might have been something on the job. Who knows what it might be. That's what happens when we contemplate the greatness of the Savior being born in Bethlehem who is going to, to, to bring God's favor upon men. When we think about every the things at least we know, can remember, the older we get, sometimes it gets a little gray. But when we really begin to remember every terrible thought, every impure word, every conversation that was, that was negative and, and, and filthy and sullied, and yet we know that we are forgiven because we're loved. Not forgiven because somebody's got you know, God's arm back behind his back and he's yelling, Uncle, I forgive him, but because he loves then what you want to do is you want to live a life that is worthy of that which has come into your life. Why are we generous? Because God's been generous with us. Why are we forgiving with one another? Because God has been forgiving of us. Why are we loving with one another? It's because God has loved us. Why do we build each other up? It's because God has helped us up off of the ground and set us on our feet once again. Why are we patient? It's because God has been patient infinitely and He's going to be patient, it seems like, eternally with me, but He's patient with us. And when we recognize that and we realize all of that, it is completely revolutionary in our life. And that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a disciple. To look at that Messiah and to say that He is Lord. It is to look at that Messiah, Jesus, He's the only one. There are no other Messiahs. He's it. 
to look at that Messiah and say, I can only be forgiven in Him. And so I participate in His death, burial, and resurrection, His sacrifice, His paying the price for my sin. I, I, I recognize that and I participated in, in baptism and my sins are washed away. And I repent because I'm in God's light and I recognize how, how naked I truly am, that all of that stuff that I try to clothe myself with, it's just, it's just rags. And I repent, and I'm not going to live that way anymore, and I'm going to live in direction of God from here on out. That's what those shepherds did. Shepherds got up, and they went to Bethlehem to find that Messiah. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. What I want to know, what our shepherds in this church want to know, what every person sitting in this room this morning wants to know, of you. Well, are you going to be honest? Are you going to be honest? In God's light, are you honest with yourself? And in that honesty, do you really feel good about that? If you're honest and you see the fractures, there's a way to deal with it. These shepherds are going to be down here at the front. They want you before this church to confess that Jesus is Lord. They want you, as this church of witness, to repent and to turn your life in direction of God. They want this church to witness you up here in this baptistry, having your sins washed away as you participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then from that point on, to live in God's glory, in God's light, in God's presence, without fear, but with a joy and with a peace and a confidence and a courage and a power that you have never known in your life as you face not just the good things that happen in life, but the, the, it seems like the litany of terrible things and tragedies that, that continue, even though we are God's children, continue to exist in our life. We face it completely differently. If that describes you this morning, these shepherds will be down here at the front. They want to receive you. Come now as we stand and sing together. I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. How we left his home in glory.